Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. We're going to turn in the Word of God to Zephaniah. And before we do that, let us just bow in prayer and commit our ways to the Lord. Oh God, our Father, we come before Thee, even on the first day of another year, thanking Thee that this is the Lord's day and that we're privileged to gather in the house of God and come around those things that are eternal, that are lasting. We thank Thee for Thy hand upon us during the year gone by and for every Bible class time that has been convened here. And we thank Thee for the Scriptures that we have seen and studied. And, O Lord, we pray that as we enter into another year, Thou wilt be with us and bless us, and that this class would be profitable to many. We pray, Lord, for those who gather Sunday by Sunday, for those who join with us online. We pray that every heart will be touched and blessed, and that there will be profit gained, benefit uh, given to souls by what we consider. O Lord, be with us here today. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt hear our cries for the work of God. We long for Thee. We need Thee. We confess our own uh, sin and unworthiness. And yet, Lord, we come to Thee in the name of that blessed man of Calvary, the one who loved us and died for us, who gave himself at the cross for our sin, having, first of all, fulfilled the law in its precept. We thank Thee that then he took its penalty, and he endured the wrath of God that was our due. Lord, on that basis we're justified. We thank Thee for that standing that we have in Christ, and we pray that Thou wilt hear us for His sake. Bless the Sunday school program, our youth Bible classes. Give help to all who teach. Remember the meetings of today, morning and evening. Remember the time tonight around the Lord's table. O Lord, we pray that this entire day will be overshadowed by Thy presence, that we will know Thy help and what we ask for. For here we pray that Thou wilt grant the same to our sister churches and to all of like mind. O Lord, remember the work of God, remember the cause of Christ, and move in power in times like these. And so, Father, abide with us and bless us here today, and, and may Thy hand be upon us, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen and amen. So we're turning to Zephaniah and the chapter 1. I want to read the chapter with you. It's good to read through these Scriptures and familiarize ourselves with what we have before us. So Zephaniah 1, and reading from verse 1. The word of the Lord which came on to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the name of the Kemarim with the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. 
and them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for Him, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, He hath bid His guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their masters' houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, ye inhabitants of Mactesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass in that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. Uh, they shall also build houses but not inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against defense cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy, for He shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. And the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, we come to Zephaniah. He is the ninth of the twelve minor prophets. He introduces himself to us in the opening verse of this prophecy. It's on that verse that I will focus to a great degree this morning. And in doing so, he underlines a number of facts that are found in verse 1 of chapter 1. This introduction that we have in this verse is given by Zephaniah himself. Essentially, he sets up the scene for the remainder of what we have in this book. And that's why the opening verse of any book is very, very important. And certainly, Zephaniah 1 verse 1 is of paramount importance, and we must understand it. There are three things I want us just to look at here today. First few will, uh, first two may be a little faster than the third one, but I want, first of all, just to say that Zephaniah was a man with a royal pedigree. He was a man with a royal pedigree. Now, of all the prophets whose writings we have here in the Bible, Zephaniah presents a very extensive lineage in this verse, chapter 1, verse 1. 
He names four men who came before him. In other words, there are four generations mentioned here preceding uh, Zephaniah himself. Look at the names that we have, Cushai, and then he's the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Those are the four generations that preceded Zephaniah. Cushai, obviously, is his father, and on it goes right down through these verses. So, Cushai, Gedaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah. Now, we focus for a moment on the name Hezekiah, because some writers are of the mind that uh, Zephaniah pens these four generations that are indicated by these four names to establish his royal pedigree. In other words, it's believed that Zephaniah himself came from the royal line, from the line of Judah. And we, we draw that from this name, Hezekiah. Now, that's a name you'll not meet in that form, I, I mean, very often. In fact, not at all. But here we have it in this verse. But in the Hebrew, remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and so in the Hebrew original of the Old Testament, the letters of this name Hezekiah are precisely the same as the name Hezekiah. And you've all heard of Hezekiah, I believe. That's the name, Hezekiah, of one of the godliest of Judas kings. And so reliable commentators like Matthew Henry are of the opinion that Hezekiah, in this verse, is actually Hezekiah. And that's why we talk about his royal pedigree, because this means that, and we believe this is correct, this means that he came from the royal house, the house of Judah, and he descended from Hezekiah, that great man of God of whom you read in three places in the Old Testament. You read about him in Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and also in the book of Isaiah. The story of Hezekiah is majored on in those three portions by the Spirit of God because of the kind of man that he was, the work that he did for the Lord, the stand that he took, and the wonderful things that happened under his reign, and especially the great revival that came in the days of Hezekiah. And so, this man, Zephaniah, is descended from, uh, from Hezekiah, therefore a man with a royal pedigree. The second thing I want us to think here about Zephaniah, by way of introduction to him and to the book, is that he was a man in the right place. So he was a man with a royal pedigree, he was a man in a right place. Further proof that Zephaniah is descended from Hezekiah is pointed out in the fact that he ministered during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah was descended from Hezekiah. So if you look at the end of the verse here, verse number 1, it says, "...in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah." And so if you take the start of this verse, "...the word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah in the days of Josiah." the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so we're beginning to see how this verse opens up another line of thought to us. And I say he was a man in the right place because it means, what I'm saying is, it means that he was in the right place to minister in a profitable manner because he ministered in the days of this man called Josiah. Now, Josiah, like his ancestor Hezekiah, 
was a most godly king as well. It's interesting just to, to notice the history there. You had Hezekiah, then you had Manasseh, then you had Amon, and then you had Josiah. And so Josiah was, again, the fourth generation after Hezekiah, even like Zephaniah himself. Josiah ministered at the same time as Jeremiah. We will see that a little later in this study today. And so, just keep that in mind. Zephaniah, uh, I, sh- I said Josiah there, Zephaniah and Jeremiah were actually contemporaries. They ministered at the same time. And as I say, we will see that uh, in one of the verses that we'll turn to a little later. Now, under the time, or in the time of Josiah, there was another revival. And I want us to think about that. Revival came under Josiah as it had come under Hezekiah. And so, that means that since there was a new revival, or a fresh revival in the days of Josiah, in between Josiah and Hezekiah before him, things had waned, things had drifted again, and actually greatly in the generations after Hezekiah's day. As I've already mentioned, Hezekiah was succeeded by his son Manasseh, and Manasseh then was succeeded by his son Amon. Now, by and large, they were ungodly men, except for the fact with regard to Manasseh, God had mercy on him when he was an old man, really, and he saved him. And we'll note that today in a couple of the references. But in the earlier part of Manasseh's reign, he led Judah away from God, away from everything that his father Hezekiah had done in the revival and in the Reformation that came under his reign and under his ministry as a man of God. Manasseh led the people away from that completely. And Manasseh was guilty, as we're going to see, of terrible sin and and terrible wickedness in his day and in his time. And so under Manasseh and Amon, his son, idolatry proliferated or it grew with all the corruption that idolatry brings. And so at the time of Josiah, there was need again for fresh intervention uh, by the Lord and by the Holy Spirit. And that actually came, another moving of God, as the closing chapters, 35 and 36 of Second Chronicles reveal, and also the closing chapters of Second Kings. Now, one basic fact is sure here. The ministry of Zephaniah would undoubtedly have contributed to the revival that came in the days of Josiah. Remember what it said, and it tells us here that the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah in the days of Josiah. And remember, the days of Josiah were days of awakening and revival and the blessing of God. And that means that Zephaniah would have contributed to that awakening by his preaching, by his ministry in those days of Josiah. In that regard, that's why I say he was, the, he was in the, a man in the right place. Because since he was from the royal line, He was, therefore, in a place to exercise an effective ministry. Look with me here at verse 8. And notice what the Lord says through Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1, verse 8. It shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princess and the king's children and all such 
as are clothed with strange apparel. Uh, strange apparel. That reference to strange apparel, by the way, is a reference to the priests in the days of Josiah and Zephaniah who had departed from God and they clothed themselves in apparel or in garments that was not what God appointed in the time of Aaron and his sons. God gave the priesthood of Israel special garments to wear, but here we find that they're abandoned, and that was a token of the priests abandoning the things of God and the Word of God. Instead of teaching it, they had abandoned it, and they put on their strange apparel. I don't know what they thought they were doing. They gave them, they thought, more enhancement and more acceptance with the people. But anyhow, that's what the reference is to there in verse number 8. But what I want you to notice in verse 8, it's a very important verse. It adds some importance to the detail of Zephaniah's royal pedigree. Because it says here that God was going to punish the princes and the king's children. And that would have been delivered. That is that reproof for the sin and the folly of the princes and the king's children would have been delivered by Zephaniah. And since he was linearly descended from Hezekiah, he was of the royal house, he was well positioned to confront the royal house and rebuke them for their sin. Because remember, and we will see this a little later on today, uh, if time permits, that Josiah's sons were the men who then led Judah away from God in their generations. And in the days of Josiah's sons, the Babylonian captivity took place. And that means that those princes, the king's children, were going to be rebuked and were going to be exposed for their sin and their foolishness by the captivity that actually came. But this man, Zephaniah, was in a position to rebuke them, to reprove them, to expose their sin. You know, when you think about this, it makes you just at least focus on the fact that what we would need in our royal house is a Zephaniah raised up to rebuke the royal house for their sin and their departure from the things of God, which, of course, is a truth. It is a fact, as we all are very much aware. But what I learned from this, what I want you to learn from this is, the Lord has His servants, wherever they are needed, and for whatever purpose they are needed, He has them in a right place when that need arises. Let me show you a few examples of this that bear out what I'm saying. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 for a moment. And look there at verses 12 and 13. Philippians 1, verse number 12. And here's Paul, and we know that Mr. Stewart has been preaching through this chapter already, but just to remind you of what we have here, Philippians 1, verse 12, Paul's in prison, remember? And yet in prison he's exercising a ministry. It says in verse 12, I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me that's his imprisonment. That's his uh, suffering. That's uh, all that he's going through as he languishes in a prison cell. The things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident 
by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you see there the influence that Paul's imprisonment had upon other preachers and upon God's people in general and actually fell out, as he puts it, in other words, resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. And here's an example of a man being in the right place. Now, from the human point of view, from the worldly point of view, that would have not been the conclusion of ungodly men that Paul was in jail. And they might have said, well, there you are, the preacher's in jail. That's it all over. The gospel won't spread any farther. His voice is silent. He can't preach. And so forth. That's what the unsaved would have said, but they were wrong. God put Paul in prison. That's actually clearly brought out in verse 17. If you just look quickly at Philippians 1:17, it says at the end of that verse, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And how many times have we heard those words used actually in a wrong way? People interpret those and even preach those words as if they are saying that Paul's this champion, he's got a sword in his hand, and he's set for the defense of the gospel. He's standing outside the camp, as it were, and he's, he's really blasting all around him. That's not what the words mean. The word set is in a certain voice in the Greek language. It's in what's called the passive voice. And what that means is Paul hadn't set himself where he was. God set him and where was he? He was in jail. You see, no man in his right mind would volunteer to go into prison. That's a fact. We love freedom. We like to be uh, at liberty to go about our daily work and so on. And so, you see, Paul was an innocent man. He shouldn't have been in jail. He'd done, he had done nothing wrong. And that's what I mean he, he didn't volunteer to go into jail. He was put there falsely under false charges. But he can say, God put me here. I'm set here in this jail for the defense of the gospel. That's the meaning of that language. And please understand that. It doesn't mean what I've said earlier, that Paul's out there in the forefront of the battle and he's slaying all around him in a spiritual sense. No, he's actually in jail. And God put him there. But you see, the point is, his incarceration resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Look at chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 22. Chapter 4, verse 22. It says, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Another little insight into what has happened here. You see, the prison where he was was attached to the palace, Caesar's palace. And the outcome was that many were converted right in Caesar's palace because Paul went to jail and was set there by the Lord. And so the Lord had His servant where He wanted him to be and to fulfill the purpose that He had. In other words, there are people to save, people who are going to be converted in Caesar's palace, but they have to hear the gospel. And somebody has to be in there to tell them. And somehow or other, through Paul's imprisonment, those who are mentioned in chapter 4.22 have come to know the Lord and have heard the gospel and so forth. 
And so he is a man, not only with a royal pedigree, this man Zephaniah, he's a man in the right place. And uh, we, we see that illustrated even by the life of the Apostle Paul. But to come now to the main point that I mentioned earlier. The first two points here were, were really uh, brief in, in content, but we come now to what I want to focus on in the remainder of this time today. Zephaniah was a man with a, re, with a relevant prophecy. A man with a relevant prophecy. The central burden and message of the book of Zephaniah is the message of judgment. Now, this is striking while Josiah pursued and saw revival in his days, Zephaniah lived and ministered in those days, yet the threat and the portend of judgment loomed over the nation of Judah even when the revival came. You see, sometimes, men and women, revival comes in order to hold back the judgment of God which is sure to come eventually. We should always remember that. Revival does not necessarily mean that a nation is going to be delivered from what it deserves. And there's much in history, both biblical history and in church history, to bear that out. And that's what we're seeing here. This man, Zephaniah, along with Josiah, they labor together. They see revival come and yet, the threats of judgment remain. They loom over the nation of Judah, and those threats actually become a reality. And so, this is why Zephaniah is a man with a relevant prophecy. Above all the minor prophets, Zephaniah wrote and he spoke of judgment coming. And we'll see more about this in the next study from this book. But today, I'm just introducing it to you. And when we think about this, that there's a man with a, a, a relevant prophecy, a prophecy of judgment to come, and, and, and God's wrath been poured out upon the nation of Judah in the context of their captivity in the land of Babylon, we're seeing that his prophecy was very, very relevant. You see, whenever God sends a man, when He raises up a man, He will have something relevant to say, relevant to the times, relevant to what's going on. He will speak for God. He will deliver a message that has application to the day and the times in which he lives. And that's exactly what you find here with this man, uh, Zephaniah. From that fact that he had a relevant prophecy, that is, he prophesied of judgment coming even though there was an interval when revival descended upon the nation once again. From that we learn a, a few thoughts that are worthy of our attention Notice from this the powerful influence that a godly man can exercise over a nation that is doomed. The powerful influence that a godly man can exercise over a nation that is actually doomed. As I've said, Josiah, along with Zephaniah, saw Judah being kept from judgment during his reign, Josiah's reign. The judgment did not come then. I want you to turn now to 2 Chronicles 35, 2 Chronicles chapter 35, and we haven't time to read all the verses that I would like to read, but I want to draw them to your attention. You make a note of them and go back and read them maybe some other time. So 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and the verse number 20, after all this, when Josiah, so here's Josiah, 
And remember chapter 35 and chapter 34 even are chapters in which we see the tremendous revival of the days of Josiah. So after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. That's the river Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, that is, the king of Egypt sent ambassadors to Josiah, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. And what he means there is that he, that is, Necho, the king of Egypt, had come up to fight against Carchemish, who was uh, another king altogether, was not of Judah at all. But what happens is, for some reason, Josiah decides, I'm going out to fight with the king of Egypt. Look again at verse 21. I am not come, I, came, I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thou, sorry, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearken not unto the words of Necho, that's the king of Egypt, from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. What's that? That's Armageddon. You read about Armageddon in the Bible. And that's the same place, the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. And verse 24 describes how he then died. Then look at verse 25. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. Let's bring this all together. Here's this godly king, Josiah, who has seen God move in revival. The result is that judgment has been held back from Judah for a a period of time because of that revival, because of the movings of God. And yet, for some strange unknown reason, Josiah, as we've read in these verses, decides he's going to go out and meddle in something that wasn't his business. That's what happened here. As verse 21 tells you, or verse 20 tells you, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. Carchemish was not of Judah. Uh, We're not exactly told where he was from, but that's where the king of Egypt was going to fight. Josiah went out, and he tried to fight the king of Egypt. And what did he do? He lost his life, and his ministry ended. Now, it was a mistake. He intermeddled in another person's affairs, and the outcome was that he lost his life. Now, God's sovereign providence was in all this, remember, because, you see, the time has come for Judah to be judged. And for that to happen... The Lord must take Josiah out of the way. And he allowed this to happen. He decreed that this would happen, actually. But Josiah was actually responsible 
for his life being lost because he went out. He wouldn't listen to the advice, as verse 21 tells you. This king, uh, Nico, the king of Egypt, actually warns him, God has sent me to fight a battle with Carchemish. It's not your business. You stay out of it. But Josiah wouldn't listen, as it tells you there in these verses. And it teaches you and me a very vital lesson. We need to be very careful about how we behave, how we act in the work of God. There are things that are maybe not your realm or my realm, and we're not to meddle in them or to stay out of them. Josiah did not do that, and his ministry ended. And so, for a time, his ministry had been a bulwark against judgment coming. And this man uh, Jeremiah appears on the scene here. As you look at verse 25 again of Second Chronicles 35, Jeremiah lamented for Josiah because he realized that Josiah was God's bulwark against the judgment that had been, that he himself, Jeremiah, had announced. And Zephaniah had prophesied and was still prophesying. Josiah and his mighty power with God that was standing against all this actually coming to pass. And so, after Josiah's death, things plummeted drastically, as chapter 36 reveals. Um, we haven't time to look at that, but you can read chapter 36 and see how Josiah's sons, one after the other, came to reign in Judah, and didn't last very long because they were all wicked men, and soon Judah is carried away. But the point I'm making is, here is an illustration of the powerful influence that a godly man can exercise over a nation that's actually doomed. And then, sadly, Josiah throws it all away by making that mistake and meddling with affairs that weren't his. But it is taught in the Bible that the life and the influence of even one godly man can be a, a tremendous bulwark against the judgment of God. If you want to see an illustration of that, turn to Genesis 26 and verse number 18. I want us to notice something here. This is about Abraham and Isaac, and something said here about Abraham that's very interesting. Genesis 26 and verse 18, Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. So, Isaac, that's the context here. He's digging wells, obviously, to get water. And he, he now reopens wells, verse, 20, verse 18. He, he reopens wells that had been dug in the days of Abraham. Now, what had happened to those wells? Read on in verse 18. The Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And the inference is that while Abraham was alive, the Philistines couldn't stop those wells because Abraham was a man with power with God. And it was only after Abraham was gone that the enemy was able to fill up the wells. You know, there's a tremendous spiritual truth there. And if you'll turn now to Acts 26, you will see what that, or Acts 20 rather, you will see what that truth is. Turn to Acts chapter 20, please, and let's bring this out clearly before our minds, the powerful influence a godly man may have in his day and time. And we're seeing it with uh, Josiah. We've seen an illustration of it 
with Abraham. Now look at Acts 20, verse 29. Here is the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he's given them counsel and advice. But here's what he says in verse 29. And it's a very, very striking verse as well. For I know this, that after my departing. Do you note that? It doesn't mean his death. It means that when he moves on from Ephesus, because Paul is only at Ephesus here for a very short time, and then he's moving on. He says, I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and he uses language there, that our Lord had used. The Lord talked about wolves and sheep's clothing coming in to destroy the work of God. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's men, men who are evil and corrupt and have another gospel and who spread their lies and their heresy and so on. That's who he's talking about. I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember and so on. And what do we learn here? We learn here that while Paul was present in Ephesus, these men who are described under the metaphor of grievous wolves could not enter into the flock, could not come among God's people. Paul was a bulwark against them. And then in verse 30, he says, of your own selves, from among you within the ranks of the church, there will arise those who will speak perverse things. So what do you learn here? In verse 29, men are going to come in from the outside. And verse 30, men will rise up from inside. And that's an insight into what has happened down through time in the history of Christ's church. Those who have come to be a nuisance or come to be even more than a nuisance to damage the work of God. They have either come from outside or inside. And Paul warns of that. But the point is, while Paul was around, they dare not enter in. They could not enter in. He was a man with such power with God, it just was not going to happen. But you see, brethren and sisters, that kind of a man's rare. That kind of a man's rare. Josiah, while he was alive, was a bulwark against the judgment falling on Judah. He made a great mistake. He went out and fought a battle that wasn't his battle. Just note that. There are battles and there are skirmishes or wars, whatever you want to call them, that may have nothing to do with you. So you just stay out of them. Stay out of them. Josiah didn't. And he paid an awful price. And then in these other places we're seeing the same thing come out. A godly man, a man whose power with God can hold back the enemy. Maybe even all on his own as God's hand is on him. And then whenever he goes, whatever way that might be, passing away, like Abraham dying, then the Philistines came and filled up the wells. Or Paul leaving Ephesus to move on, then these things happened to the church at Ephesus. And whatever the case might be, we notice that a godly man can exercise a great, a great influence 
uh, even over a nation that is doomed to failure. Turning back to Zephaniah here, another thought that arises from this fact that Josiah was a man with a relevant prophecy, and therefore, along with Josiah, judgment was held back for a while. Another thing is that judgment came because the basic character of the people of Judah was not changed. The basic character of the people of Judah was not changed, not even by the revival that came in the days of Josiah. I want you to see this. Go back, please, to Second Chronicles chapter 36, and I encourage you to do that, because if you don't, then you may not be able to follow this as I want you to follow it and see it right from the text of Scripture. So, going back to Second Chronicles chapter 36, let's just notice what we uh, should notice here. Second Chronicles and the chapter 36 this time, look at verse number 14. And it says in that verse, Moreover, Second Chronicles 36 now, verse 14, Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised His words and misused His prophets. And that would include Zephaniah, remember? Until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. Now, this is not long after the death of Josiah. His sons have come to the throne one after the other. They pursue evil. The people of the nation were not corrected, really, and so they were all swept away. Now, these people whom we've read about here in these verses 14 to 16 of chapter 36 of Second Chronicles were people who heard the prophets of God says that in verse 16. It says, They mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words. They misused His prophets. That was their response to the faithful preaching in those days of revival. You see, when revival comes, not everyone by any stretch of the imagination is converted, and not everyone is for the revival. By even a greater stretch of the imagination could we never say that. You take our own little country and the 1859 revival, it is reckoned there were 100,000 people who were converted in this province, and that's a huge number. But that does not mean everybody in Northern Ireland or Ulster taking these counties. Remember, it was all one country back then. I mean, Ireland. And so the revival came to this part of, of, of the island. Yes, it did go down south to some degree, but not so much as up here. And so, 100,000 people, it's reckoned, were converted. A great work was done. But my dear friend, there were multitudes who were never touched. And they lived on in their unbelief and in their darkness and in their rejection of God. And then, of course, the effects of the revival began to wane as always happens. And, and that's why we need God to keep moving again and again and again, if it be as well. 
Because if you take a time of blessing, it goes by. The devil gets in. Sin gets in. Division comes in. Whatever happens, and the effects are lost from that human point of view. Yes, God has done His work. But you see, not everybody's for it. And that was true in Josiah's day. It was true in the days of this man, Zephaniah, his contemporary. And therefore, we are seeing, are we not, that the judgment did come because though it was held back by the influence of godly Josiah and Zephaniah, yet the basic character of the people remained the same. You see, revival in terms of the conversion of sinners is regeneration of the human heart. And God is continually regenerating sinners, one here, another there. And thank God it has happened in our own little congregation here during 2022. A number have been converted unto the Lord. And when revival comes, what God's doing with the ones and twos is then multiplied, maybe hundreds or thousands. But that's what revival is as it impacts the unsaved. It's what God is ordinarily doing among the ones and twos. He multiplies that. And then, as I say, it begins to wane. And all around you, people remain the same. You know, people can get very excited, maybe about a gospel mission. And they come along and they show an interest, or maybe you talk to them and they seem to be influenced, and, and they want to hear, and, or so it seems, and then it all dies. And maybe you're very disappointed and, and vexed in your soul. And have we not all had that experience? People who promised much, it came to nothing. Well, when you have revival, that happens too. Let me tell you something. When revival has come, that is when you really know what the devil is. Because he will fight it tooth and nail. And the character of the nation remains largely untouched. They remain hard and callous and sinful. But let me say something else here. Long accumulated sins will not go unpunished. That's what we're seeing here as well. We've seen the relevance here of, 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 of Zephaniah's ministry, his prophecy, and, and therefore we've seen the, the influence that he and Josiah had over a nation that was actually doomed, and, and we're learning that the basic character of the people, by and large, had not changed. We've seen that in Second Chronicles 36. But you see, all the sins that had piled up for generations had to be punished. I want you to go back now into the Old Testament. This time to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. And let's look at this carefully. Our time here is just about gone, but we'll look at this quickly. 2 Kings 21, verse number 11. And this is about Manasseh. Remember what I said a while ago? Manasseh was eventually saved. God had mercy on him and and delivered that man. But in his early reign, he was an ungodly wretch. And Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Manasseh lived under the influence of God and truth in his early days. But look at this, 2 Kings 21, verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, and had done 
and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore saith, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria." That means what God had done in Samaria, the northern kingdom, He's going to use the same, the same measuring line now for Judah. I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You know, that's a powerful metaphor. You men who wash the dishes... I'm sure you did there over the last few days. If you do it properly, what do you do? You wipe it clean, you wash it clean, so you can turn it upside down and there's nothing on it that's going to fall on the floor. That's what that metaphor means. Everything is wiped away. And that's the metaphor God uses about His judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. He says, I'm going to deal with it as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. If you look at this same chapter and go down to verse 19, Second Chronicles, Second Kings 21, 19, Amon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign. Remember, he's the son of Manasseh. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Verse 20, He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. He walked in all the way of his, that his father walked in and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and walked not in the way of the Lord. And Amon died in his sin. Manasseh was saved by the mercy of God. But the point is, all the sins that Manasseh had committed, even though he became a converted man in his old age, God still had to deal with those sins. You see, brethren and sisters, it's a very solemn thing we're noticing here. In your own converted days, you can sin in such a way that it catches up later on. Even though God has saved you and forgiven those sins, it can bring situations later that are not in any shape or fashion beneficial. And we should always keep that in mind. Sin is an awful thing. And here we're finding that the sins of Manasseh and Amon, even though Manasseh was converted, Amon wasn't, but they are dealt with later on. In other words, long accumulated sin will not go unpunished. Isn't that what God shows us in the story, the account there in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah? Their sin, God says, reached to heaven. And God had to deal with it. Now, He brought Lot out. Lot was a saved man. And what else happened in that context, I have no idea. Two daughters got out with him, but they didn't seem to be up to much, as we say. But anyhow, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah rose to such a height that judgment was meted out 
in spite of Abraham's prayer. Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, and the only way in which that prayer was answered was Lot and brought out, and that was great. But the rest of the people were destroyed. See, in, in Romans 2 verse 5, Paul says a very solemn thing, and I'll read the verse for you. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5. He says this, After thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, or until the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, here are people all around us. You may have noticed last night, maybe on the news or wherever, about all the celebrations across the world about the new year. And you know, the whole thing is so hedonistic, pagan, ungodly. And there they are, and they were out last night, and the same happened in our little country and, and so on, as well as other countries, and, and, they were, and they were dressed up scandalously, and they were parading their wickedness, and they were drunk to the teeth. And let me tell you something, you're not going to get away with that. You know what they were really doing? They were treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. What is it that brings wrath? It's sin. And so when Paul writes in Romans 2, 5 about people treasuring up wrath, what is there by inference is they're treasuring up wrath because they're accumulating sin. God does not forget about sin. God will judge sin. He will bring it to light. He will deal with it in His own justice and in His own inimitable way. And may we this day see all this even from what we see in Zephaniah. See, Zephaniah, as I said at the outset, is the minor prophet in which we see a presentation of the judgment of God as we see it in none of the other minor prophets. And that's why I brought you to all those verses, because every one of them is in relation to the day in which Zephaniah lived, a contemporary of Jeremiah, and so forth. And therefore, it's all very much a relevant prophecy that he delivered. We'll have to close. Time's gone. Let's bow in prayer, and let us cry to God. Father in heaven, we confess this day that we deserve Thy wrath. Our nation does. And, O Lord, how we pray that Thou wilt give godly men to come again among us and stand up for Thee and raise a voice and hold back Thy judgment. While we know that all sin will ultimately be judged, Lord, we pray for a moving of the Spirit, help from heaven. Hear and answer prayer. Go with us into the time of prayer now. Go with us into the morning meeting. Bless thy servant. Come down, we pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.